Welcome to The Whole Truth, where two wholesalers help financial professionals build great practices and thrive in a rapidly changing industry. We'll bring you the stories and voices from those on the front lines of this change, and we'll have some fun along the way. This is more than a podcast. We're building a community of financial professionals who are growing, forward-thinking, and want to get better. Thanks for listening and contributing to the discussion. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. And welcome, everybody, to The Whole Truth from the Bay Area, California. I am Steve Side. And I am Kurt Dupuis. We got a really, really fun show today. Uh, Richard Wildman's on. A lot of you may know him. He's been in the industry for a long, long time. He's been a coach at all the major wirehouses, I'm pretty sure. And actually, Touchstone has a longstanding relationship with him as well. We would bring him in to do these coaching meetings. The way we'd structure a day is we'd have individual team coaching sessions throughout the day. So, you know, we did a pre-call with team. They sit down with the coach for an hour. Richard would go through, you know, and coach them on what they wanted to work on, et cetera. But what would happen was, you know, after the coach comes in, um, you know, unless you're going to pay Richard for an ongoing relationship, he's he's going to go. I mean, he's got things all around the country that he's got to get to all the time. And so what I had to do is step in and actually help people to execute on what we talked about. And that was kind of some of the origins of what we do were stimulated or sort of uh, brought forth by Richard Wildman. I only know the name and sort of the lore of Richard Wildman. But when I started going down the same coaching practice management path, we had tons of stuff on our internal drives about like transition to advisory, uh, the tools, yeah, psychological needs for the affluent, ninety day elevation plans, like a, a lot of like the the construct of that, I think came from him, best I can tell, because there's a, just a treasure trove of stuff we have internally that that all came from him. So I never met the guy, and as you'll find out, I was sick for this episode, but uh, his influence. Like lives on at Touchstone. And the tools are a good thing to bring up. You hear a lot of people talk about practice management ideas, but it's all in the execution. And Richard gave us all these tools to help people execute. So that was really great. And uh, as you'll see, he's, uh, if you don't know him, he's like a really big personality. He's a confident guy. He's got great stories. He's he's really, really funny. So uh, I think everyone will really enjoy this episode. So before we get into our interview with Richard Wildman, make sure you smash that subscribe button Tell a friend, and if you have a question, comment, or critique, make sure to send that to us at thewholetruth at touchstonefunds.com. Side reads those late on Friday night when he's alone. (laughs) And without further ado, here's our interview with Richard Wildman. Richard, I want to start with a story with you because I'm not entirely sure that you know what a humongous impact that you've had on my career, but also Touchstone as an organization. And I, and I want to start there. We did events, God, it was, a, it was a bunch of years ago at this time, maybe four or five years ago, where we would run around Northern California. We'd lined up a day where you would either do a keynote or we'd line up you know, six or seven teams. And so Richard would come in and uh, he had background on the teams themselves and and understood what, you know, they wanted to work on, what their challenges, what their pain points were. And, you know, he would he would coach them and we do an hour session. The reason that you were such an impact on me was 
after you had identified those challenges and the solutions and what you wanted the teams to work on, you know, you have other places to be. So you get on a plane and go. And it was up to me to actually help them through using your tools to actually help these teams take action. That forced me, and I was going to be a consultant a consultant type approach anyways, but it really did force me to, to work with the teams in, in a consulting type relationship. And I got to tell you, it, it completely changed who I am as a wholesaler and who we are as a firm. So I just got to start off and say, thank you. Well, thank you, Steve. And it was uh, my privilege. And yes, we had uh, a couple of years there of running the roads pretty hard uh, throughout the Touchstone footprint. So thank you for that. And most importantly, thanks for following up with the teams with the tools, because to know and not to do is just as good as not to know, as my good friend, the late Jim Rohn used to say. So that's a good point. Thank you. There's probably sometimes you wonder, oh, is that person going to be able to execute? Do you have a do you have a feeling about that? Do you go, okay, is this wholesaler going to be able to move the needle on that? Or what's what's your honest assessment of that? I think most providers of product, once they come to the realization that building out, shall we say, a successful business is not all about the product. In fact, it's less about the product and more about the relationship. So that the more that they invest in helping, we'll say, advisors to really accomplish whatever it is the advisor wants. It might be scaling the practice, growing the practice, elevating service. I mean, there's a whole list of things that people are um, attempting to uh, solve. Uh, As long as the wholesaler has the mindset that I'm not just here to sell, but I'm here to build a thoughtful, caring relationship and help you to accomplish Mr. or Miss Advisor, whatever you want, that, that just changes the game. Now, to your specific question, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's lots of gunslingers out there. I just uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I don't yeah. mean to beat up on other wholesalers. No, no, no. no. Sure it's, but it is what it is. It is. Yeah. What, yeah, they're just you know they're driven by the data point as opposed to being driven by the because in the end, if you really look at the industry, and this applies to advisors as well as wholesalers, the truth is thoughtful, caring relationships drives revenue. Period. Period. Yeah. That's it. That, that, I mean, yeah. that is it. And, you know, I always get to it. And I can always tell because I'll mention that to a new host. And they'll say, yeah, but. And you're like, okay, this is going to be exciting. So. <laughs> I concur 100%. And, uh, and it was nice to get a head start. It seems like the industry is trying to get there in terms of yeah. wanting – elevated wholesaler experience that drive those types of relationships. But, uh, but we've been, we've been doing a long time and you have a a big thanks uh, to you for that, but let's, let's jump into it. I, I was first exposed to you, you know, you did a keynote presentation, I think it was a touchstone national sales meeting and you, and you Mm -hmm. talked about your background, which was a really, you know, compelling story. So I wonder if you can cover that background and specifically talk about, there's a phrase that I, I saw in your book, which we'll get to, about how you were a student of the affluent. So maybe if you can cover those two things. Okay, just very briefly as far as background. I, uh, you know, some people say, well, there was a fortunate background, but actually I was very fortunate in the sense that uh, I never had call reluctance. So uh, in that <laughs> regard, uh, because my, my parents died, I was a little kid. My mother died in S5, my dad died in S6, and so I went into foster care. I lived in uh, 19 different foster homes, went to 11 different schools. And um, so, uh, you know, I slept in attics and basements. I mean, they were foster wow. people trying to, you know, move 
their life and your life forward at the same time. And in those days, if you got attached to the family, the social workers would move you because you weren't up for adoption. So long story short, and I say it's an advantage primarily because my very first sales job was selling cookware door to door. And the guy said, now the disadvantage of this job is you're going to have to go in strangers' houses. I'm like, well, what? that's that's like no big deal. I've been living with them my whole life. <laughs> it's been my whole life, yeah. yeah I, I just never had that that sense of disconnect to that idea. But uh, the key was, even when, uh, you know, at 18, you go foster care, out of foster care, you get aged out, and they take you to a rooming house and give you $100, and they pay the rent $15 a week for the next month. But what occurred to me was that if I was going to get involved in understanding the affluent or becoming affluent, because I made a decision early in my life, I wasn't going to live in basements the rest of my life. And, and I was going to, I, I remember the decision very well. I'm, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to let this define me. I suppose we'd say it in today's terms, but I just made a decision that someday I was not going to be living in basements and attics. And so I became a student of the affluent. And when I tell you that, I mean, some of the books that, you know, people know that I've read, they're like, who reads Julia Childs? Who reads, you know, and I mean, I even studied what place setting and how to set a table and how to work wow. from the outside in and the inside out and what the fork and the, and the spoon at the top of the plate meant and all those things. So I really became a student of the affluent. Of course, it served me very well as I went on later in life. And I was uh, involved in uh, lots of door-to-door -door selling industrial supplies. But then, of course, as you know, I got involved with Porsche. We're number one worldwide for 22 straight months from the month I took over in a dealership. And then I was with Rolls-Royce for many years. And we built the third largest Rolls-Royce dealership network in the world. And on and on it goes. I was on a plane and the guys like, looking at me weird because I'm reading Vogue, but I like to read Vogue because I can see the new colorations coming and all of those things, you know, because these are things that people, uh, I just think today you have to be very aware of lots of things and not the least of which is the shifts and changes in, in the marketplace and how people think today. So this long That's answer, excellent. I hope that was helpful. No, <laughs> it's it's great. I love hearing your story and I, I could ask you a lot more questions, but we'll we'll transition just to, you know, then sure. how do you become a coach in our industry? Well, that was a great question. Um, I'm asked that a lot. Well, when did you decide to become a coach? <laughs> I really didn't decide. And I'll tell you why. what I mean by that. You know, as you know, I speak and I speak at a lot of conferences and, and I've written a lot of books and textbooks and videos and all that stuff. But as a result of speaking, I speak in a topic and then it would be like, well, wow, could you consult with us and help us to whatever the topic was, execute this? And I had a lot of CEO, had about 20 some companies that kept that I had spoken. The CEO would reach out or the head of something and say, we really got it, but we, we, we need to have you consult and help us to put this in a strategic plan, as an example. Right. Well, that was great, and I enjoy consulting, but what dawned on me very early is it's all good to share the ideas but there, and how to do it, but what dawned on me is most organizations really need somebody to come alongside them, not as a consultant, but as really someone that they can use as a sounding board that, they can, that will coach them and help them execute. So that's what really moved me into the coaching. And of course, we've got a big platform now. I've got six full-time coaches, all very senior people. They've all built their own businesses, et cetera. But our whole objective on the coaching side is identify first, what are the two or three or five, whatever things might be, that you as a 
an advisor as a business want to accomplish. That's first. Then I set the strategy in place. Then we lay out sequential tactics to be able to execute. And we help them execute through the process. I built my online university, the Wildman Center, a few years ago. We have now 41 courses on there, Steve. But I recently wow. built it to help with coaching because instead of doing a coaching call, okay, Steve, write this down. You need to do this there, big boy. All right. And people are like, <laughs> I can't write that fast. So I was like, well, wait a minute. Why don't I just put all this on video and then I'll sign you the video, Steve, and then we'll have a call on execution. Well, oh, it, it was a game changer. Um, so that's how I got into coaching. It was really, I, I was just concerned that people wanted to do it but really needed some tactical guidance on, on how to really execute it in their practice. So you, you've got this organization, you talked about the library, but how did you end up hiring other coaches? How do the six of you work together? How do teams communicate with you guys? And the way I have built out my coaching division is, you know, we have a research division, the speaking to it, you know, the, I got way too many divisions. I'm <laughs> I got to get into multiplication. But anyhow, be that argument. Um, but just candidly, people using that I coached and counseled or consulted with or have heard me speak. And, you know, I produce lots of coursework over the years. And they would use that coursework or that workbook or whatever. And they had very substantial success. Most of them moved into leadership in their firms. Now they come to a point that either A, had a liquidity event or B, decided I want to... I want to get out of working for this company and I just want to coach. So they dial 1-800, hey, Richard, can I come there? And so that's how it's all worked out. Fantastic. You know, you personally have been coaching teams for a long, long time. Right. Um, maybe talk about some of the common challenges and opportunities that you've seen that are almost, I don't want to say universal, but come up the most. And has that changed over time? It, some of it has changed, but here's the common challenges. I, I think that we, and these are, we'll call these the biggest. Number one, roles and responsibilities are clearly defined in most teams. Hmm. And I'm talking about a team of two. <laughs> okay, where you got the advisor and yeah. the assistant. Roles are not clearly defined. Awful lot of time is spent on duplication, etc. So one is not clear roles and responsibilities. Second, the time value of service. The, we've developed a process where we actually help an advisor analyze the cost of servicing a client. You'd be shocked if I told you that people have C clients, which, you know, people with less assets or small life insurance or whatever. And uh, I mean, I got a team right now, they're spending over $7,000 a year servicing C clients. Wow. You can't get there from here. And so we do a full analysis of what it really costs to run that practice. Let's call it that. So one is roles and responsibilities. Two is efficiency of the practice. And what are you really investing in, in terms of client service? And I, I use that as a loose term. It's really client experience. Uh, so that's two big ones. The third one is, is uh, that's pretty common, is most firms are, and most teams, and even most advisors, they are, um, shall we say, they're speaking and writing and communicating at people, not with people. Interesting. So what happens is somebody says, well, so why should I do business with you? And they get a, uh, people used to call them elevator speeches. I don't know anybody who closed anybody from the first floor to the fourth floor, but maybe that's why they call it <laughs> elevator speech. But the important thing is it's usually all about them. And uh, I have an RIA right now. We just looked at their 
if you send in a note, I'd like to have an engagement with you in the inquiry form. You ought to see the email you get back. Holy moly, cannoli. Who would read it? Let's start off. Our base <laughs> fee is, you know, that's like, okay, that's good. Let's start off on price. That's always a good start. Um, so, you know, the roles, responsibilities, efficiency in the practice in terms of what you're really spending in marketing and service to service a household. The fourth piece of the puzzle is really communicating at people, not with them. And the industry is rife with this. Um, I could give you many stories and I won't, but suffice to say, it's a real problem and the consumer is really turned off by it. And I think the other thing that we see now, a major challenge, is there's really no organized sense of giving the client an elevated experience. Most advisors that we see in teams, they think that good service is good enough. And that is a real problem because 2022 is an example by the major marketing firms that we have the privilege of interfacing with. I'm talking about Fortune 50 companies. All those CMOs, chief marketing house, had declared 2022 as the year of the customer or client experience. Mm. Because the truth is, the matter is, people today, one bad experience, they could leave you. And it used to be, Steve, if somebody was upset about what you did, they'd call your boss. <laughs> now they're going to go online and, you know, basically, uh, how shall we say, vilify you in every possible way as a keyboard warrior. So reputation really matters today. And what people say really matters. And the experience that people have is really critical. I can give you really 30 second stories. I was speaking, uh, you know, uh, to a large audience doing a keynote on elevating the client experience to stand apart from the competition. I told a story that I saw on LinkedIn that morning. And I just said, you know, um, I said, I saw on LinkedIn this morning, this young lady posted about her cat. And she had placed an order with Chewy. And it was a standing order. The cat food came every month. And it was great, except it came in October. And she called Chewy and said, I can't take this order because my cats died. I said, what did Chewy's customer service rep said? Absolutely no way you're returning that order. No way. You donate it to the shelter. We're going to give you 100% credit on your bill. We're so sorry for your loss. Well, of course, that no, was the... No. And so what does the audience do? Oh, my God. All right. Yeah. Then I said, but that's not the rest of the story. Two days later, she got a bouquet of flowers and a condolence card from Chewy, customer service rep. I finished it, and this woman stood up in the middle of the audience and yelled, that was my cat. <laughs> I said, me. ladies and gentlemen, I had no idea she was here. And it was amazing. And I, she You're said, kidding. yes. And I said, you saw how many people shared that? She said, yes, it was incredible. I said, ladies and gentlemen, what does this tell us? And the whole audience, I mean, we're talking about a ballroom full, starts chanting, <laughs> we're switching to Chewy. We're Heck switching yeah. to. So yes. to the point. Those are things that people need to pay attention. Roles, responsibilities, efficiencies, communicate with, not at, really understanding that good service is not good enough, and really have a brand promise that resonates with people instead of these ridiculous, unique value proposition. People know the difference between a proposition and a promise. I mean, let's not be confused here. I'm so thankful you told that story because we can all you know, think back at a, at a brand or an experience or a company where they did that just little extra thing and that thoughtful thing and you go, oh my God, you know, I'm a, I'm a client for life. How would you grade our industry? Like, are we doing better on client experience? Are you seeing financial professionals sort of up their game or do you feel like we're losing ground? So a couple of things, roles and responsibilities, the industry's way behind. Okay. Elevating the client experience, 
The average advisor, I'm speaking of the average, is way behind the ball on that. Way behind the industries behind the ball. I mean, I still get emails that say best. I'd send it to Steve and I'd say best. <laughs> Consumers hate that. Or sincerely yours. That's another one. The industry sends out, uh, feel free to call. Well, shut up. I'm paying you. What do you mean feel free to call? How about feel welcome to call? Would that be feel good? Welcome. Maybe you could be a little yeah. more gracious to me. I mean, I mean, I'm not asking for much, but could you communicate with me instead of at me? Uh, I mean, all these little tiny things that uh, people re that resonate with people. And, and here's the final point on that, Steve. People want to feel like they're in the right place. So if you're communicating at them, you're not elevating the experience. You think good service is good enough. You don't have a structured experience in terms of uh, in terms of connecting with them, even on the service side of the, you know, I have people say, I do reviews. Yeah, we kind of keep track. We look and see how long it's been since we talked to somebody that we call them. What is that? I mean, yeah. can you have a structured communication plan? Little things, send special notes on special days. People say, well, I send a birthday card. Well, how about when I made my first purchase from you? What do you mean? Oh, I made my first investment. Well, how about hey, congratulations, another successful year as an investor or as a client or with your insurance policy or whatever the case might be. How about um, what are you doing for Mother's Day? I got a team that we worked out down in Texas last year. Well, we're going to send Mother's Day cards. And I'm like, why would you do that? Well, it's Mother's Day. I said, yeah, but they're going to get lots of Mother's Day cards. Why don't you just pick up your phone and record this? I just want to say happy Mother's Day to you. Thank you for all you do for your family. Thank you so much for what you do for the community. Mothers really make the world go round, and we're just so grateful to have you as a client. And send it to all of your clients. And guess what? They did. They got hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of new assets. Why? Because she got it and forwarded it on to somebody else. Say, look what my advisor did. So, yeah. you know, I, think, I mean, these are all little things, but they're a big deal. People want to yes. send, you know, we want to send swag with our company name on it. You know, that's a good thing. We'll send it, you know, our name on it. Really? Why don't you just, look, Fourth of July is coming. Why don't you send them all ball caps with their name on it? If their name is Schwartz, send them 15 ball caps that say Schwartz <laughs> on the front. So when they have the Fourth of July, everybody gets together. Where'd you get those? My advisor. I mean, all these things that elevate the, the industry is so far behind. We still think good service is good enough. There's not a real sense of connection with people that we meet people in the marketplace. We say, nice to meet you, which... I can tell you from all of our work in the luxury space and the affluent space, they absolutely don't like that. Number one, they're not sure it's nice to meet you until they get to know you. But the second thing that really is important is if you would say nice to see you, that puts people at ease and creates a conversational point. Anyway, I could go on for a couple of days here and I don't want to do that to you. But is that helpful? And, and I Oh, no, that's fantastic. And I, I have to tell you, I have never said nice to meet you again since you and I were working together. <laughs> Anytime I'm at an event and I'm bad because I can, you know, I can remember faces, but I don't always remember names when there's a lot of people. Sure. And so it's always nice to see you. You've, you've got me doing that. But the, the bigger point is, you know, Richard's got tons and tons of tips like that. Some of this stuff is is not like labor intensive to do what he was just talking about with Mother's Day. So visit Richard's website, um, engage with him to learn more about that. Let's transition, if we can, sure. to your book, um, which is called The Power of Why, Breaking Out in a Competitive Marketplace. I've had it for years. I've read it multiple times. I have copies for anybody in the audience that wants to wants to get a copy. Reach out to me, please, or the whole truth at touchdownfunds.com. Um, why did you name it that? Well, it's, 
you know, I, I, I'm weird, but I can't write till I get a title. I mean, it's I got all this, and you know, and I came back to the park with my with my son Rolex, the Wonder Dog. I walked in the house. My wife looked at me. She said, "Aha, you got the title." I said, "Yep, I'll see you in six months." And I write every day. So uh, the reason I call it the power of why I realized it just hit me like an epiphany. People want to know why should I do business with you, and it dawned on me as I was studying brands, FedEx, Fred rebranded when you absolutely positively need it there overnight. Pretty clear what the outcome might be there. Okay, right. you look, I looked at uh, Lazy Boy Furniture, living life comfortably. I look at Walmart, low prices every day, they're sinking ship. They get a new CEO, save money, live better. So it dawned on me, what people want is clarity about why I should do with business with you. And there was power in that. If I could, clearly communicate the power of why you should do business with me. Well, that gets you now here. Hear this. It helps you to want to engage. You see right. today, the consumer is past convincing. What you've got to do to reach a consumer is you've got to create curiosity. How do you create curiosity? Make a statement about value where people go, how do you do that? Now, I don't know about you, but it's wonderful when they ask the question. Nothing like opting in for more information. So that's how I came up with the title, The Power of Why. And I was thinking, but what does that do? Well, it helps you to break out the competitive marketplace because everybody sounds the same. We have great products, we have great service, we have this, we have great trucks, we got this, we got that. I looked at Old Dominion Freight Company. That young kid took over from his dad, uh, his grandfather then his dad. His dad died unexpectedly. He's like in his early 30s. A little tiny freight company. But it dawned on him. He came to his own epiphany and uh, helping helping the world keep its promises. That's a big statement if you're a trucking company in Virginia, helping the world keep its promises. But today they're arguably the largest trucking company in North America. Why? Because yeah. every supplier is like, I'm sick and tired of the deliveries being late. I need to call somebody that's going to help us keep our promises. Sign me up. So that's why I came up with the title, because I realized if people could understand how to communicate value, the power of why people should do business would be a game changer. And, it, you know, it's in seven languages now. Yeah, it's a great read. And like I said, reach out if you want a copy of the book. Um, let's get through some of those chapters. Um, first few deal with unique value promise, which you referenced before, mm -hmm. you know, which is an interesting way to phrase that. So maybe talk about that for a moment. Two things. Uh, you need to come up with a unique value proposition. Well, unique, that very word says there's nothing else like it. Good luck. Okay, that's what the word unique really means. So a unique value proposition, it is a proposition. It's not a promise. And what I discovered in all of our research, that people are looking for a promise of outcome. Now, in the financial world, we say, oh, well, you know, we can't make a promises because compliance, you know, will beat our brains out. Yeah, but you can tell people that I love what I do because my clients say I help them get their financial life in balance, and that's a win. Go talk to your top 10 clients. And guess yeah. what? When that advisor interviews the clients and the guy says, nah, I'm not doing business with you because you give me great returns. I give business, I do business with you because you really help me keep my financial life in balance or you've helped me manage complex financial decisions or you're always there for me when I need you. Well, that is a spectacular outcome and individuals just like that in the marketplace that you would target, they're going to resonate with that same message because your clients are going to speak in their voice the problem with advisors, we speak in our voice. 
I'm wonderful. If you don't believe it, check out my website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome. And, and comment on a, a piece of language that you use. I should say a phrase that you use, which is but before we get to all of that. And I that's helped so many people I've worked with because people have trouble making that um, transition from certain types yeah. of relationships into a business relationship. Mm. And that specific phrase is really powerful. Can you spend a minute there? Sure, absolutely. So first thing you have to recognize is that people already have the power. You can go online today. You know, when the internet first came out, I mean, you've talked in financial plan, you might, you might get 100 links. Today, you're going to be fortunate if you can get past the first 100,000 links. So yeah. you have to ask yourself, okay, they already got the power to get the information. So here's why that works. You're essentially saying this conversation is not about me, Steve. It's about you. So may I illustrate for you, Steve? Yeah. Let's say this. All right. So, Steve, thanks for meeting with me today. I'm really thrilled we had this opportunity to have a conversation. You know, and I really enjoy what I do because my clients say I help them get their financial life in balance. And that's such a pleasure for me. But before we get to all of that, what are three things you're most concerned about when it comes to getting your financial life in balance? So what have I done? I've set the table that this conversation is not about me, but rather it's about before we get to all of that, I'm yeah. giving them the power back. And I can tell you over the years, people have told me, Richard, they're shocked. They're like, oh, I wasn't expecting that which is sort of good. And the other nice thing about it is, if you, as an example, uh, I enjoy what I do as a financial advisor because my clients say I, whatever, help them navigate complex financial decisions. That's called third-party endorsement. For all my reality uh, psychology majors, you're like, holy moly, that was book six. <laughs> That's exactly right. So you get implied endorsement without being implied uh, that you're violating some rule. But before we get to all of that, so what you're saying is, I'm going to set myself aside here, Steve. I don't want to talk about me. Let's focus on what are three things you're most concerned about? Not one thing. What are three things? Because right, trilogy right. questions are important. And pay attention to the third answer because that's the one they don't want to talk about. But it is the one that will move the needle. I just had a situation in Las Vegas at the Four Seasons Hotel. You know... In, in, the, in the suite, this couple, very wealthy couple, these two advisors were coaching. They're not, they got a, a meeting. They go, they're brothers. And I said, now, when you go in there and you sit down, make sure you don't, you don't start talking all about you. What I want you to do is just say, here's what we do. But before we get to all of that, turn to her and say, what are three things you're most concerned about when it comes to your legacy? Because you already know that she's the one that didn't really want to have the meeting. So get her engaged early. Now, they go into the suite. This is the Four Seasons Las Vegas where there is no gambling. It's next door through the tunnel. She's sitting on a couch in the in the presidential suite at 830 in the morning, smoking a cigarette, drinking a cocktail. She <laughs> says to the guy, she said, if this meeting's boring, boys, boys, I'm going to go next door and gamble. They turned to her and said, you know, we love what we do because the families we work with say that we really help them have the legacy that they want for their children and their grandchildren. But before we get to all of that, what are three things you'd like to have as a legacy? I won't mention the legacy. I'll say Mrs. Wilson. She talked for 45 minutes. Wow. She turned to her husband and said, honey, that money we have was over 30 million with another firm. She said, those people don't care about us all. These guys, they're the real deal. You give them all the money. And she wow. said, boys, she said, I'm out of cigarettes. I'm going next door. He'll take care of transferring it for us and left the suite. 
Wow. Uh, why did that happen? Powerful. Why did that happen? Because they made it about about her. And then yeah, the now I'll flip you another and, one. I had yeah. another team that flew all the way to Houston, got picked up by a client, driven to the to a prospect's office. Now, think about this. I fly into Houston. I get picked up by my client who referred me, drives me to this guy's, he's a CEO of a big organization there. The team, three people walk in, sit down with this CEO. And what do you think they did? He said, well, I'm just curious why we should do business. I know that, I'll just say, Marty said that you, I should meet with you. So I'm just curious, you know, uh, I have about $10 million in cash. I've got stock options. So, but I'm just concerned. Why, well, why should I be doing business? I just want to get a sense here. And these guys talk for about 10 or 15 minutes all about, well, we're a firm and we have strategy of this and we have that and we have this. And then he was like, oh, excuse me, I'm getting up. He said, oh, sorry, guys, I got an emergency. I've got to take, I know you flew all the way here, but nothing I can do. We'll have to reschedule. I'll get back to you. Before they got back to the airport, they got an email from him. This entire meeting was all about you. I thought you were here to help me. I'll keep my money where it is. Thank you. Wow. They ended up losing the guy that referred them. Oh, my God. He moved his money, too, because he was, quote, embarrassed. And more importantly really understand before we get to all of that what are you interested in there big boy what are you interested in there mrs wilson yeah let me ask you to spend a minute on niche marketing you know a lot yeah. of this discussion here has been about client experience and making it about them um you know specifically when it comes to niches like how do you coach that that seems like a natural way to be able to deliver the type of experience that you're talking about Gosh, you're so on the money, Steve. Unfortunately, it's an unnatural way in the industry. Yeah. So we hire somebody. We do get on the phone and call your friends and family. Now, one eight hundred. I need the money so I can qualify. This is spectacular. <laughs> Why should you focus on niche markets? Well, let's just look at the research. Forget all the rest of it. Let's just look at the consumer. Pre-pandemic, sixty-seven percent of consumers said they belonged to something that supported what they did for a living or recreation or special interests that could be ethnic, charitable, church, I mean, synagogue, I mean, whatever, mosque. So 67%, pretty high number. And about yeah. 30, depending on which one we polled, it ran right into third, third about 31, 32% was the average number of people in that group. So we got 67% said it, they belonged to something. And about, we'll say, a third of them said it was important to work with an advisor in their network. Okay, so... A good number, but not critical crazy. However, since the pandemic, 87% of 1,000 people we surveyed said they belong to some organization supports what they do for a living, recreation especially. Now, the pandemic drove that because that was a safety net for a lot of people. Those networks, they can do virtually. 87%, Steve. I mean, that's a 20-point jump, but here's the big number. 71% now said that they want to work with an advisor that's working with people in their network. 71%. 71%. That's a 40-point yeah. bump. Now, again, why? Number one, people think their situation is unique. They want to work with somebody that knows them and knows about them. So this has been a massive shift. What's important is the consumer said, I want to work with an advisor that's in my network and knows and understands me. And it's really important for advisors to carve out their niche. Now, the question is how? And the, the challenges are so-called gurus out there that are making it so hard for somebody to figure this out. People are like abandoning the idea of carving out a niche. It's real simple. 
The first thing you do is take your top, pick a number. We like to do 15. You can do 10. Take your top 10 or 15 clients, call them on the phone, and find out what organizations they belong to, support what they do for a living, recreation, special interest, spreadsheet it. And guess what? You're going to uncover massive opportunities. I got teamwork coaching in North Carolina right now. Turns out her best client is a membership share for the State Association of Pharmacists. That's pretty handy. It's yeah. pretty handy. You know what I mean? It's pretty handy. <laughs> He's a delighted advocate. He's like, I'll just introduce you at home. I got their cell phones, their emails. Let's just set up a cluster. And every week I'll send you a cluster of them and tell them to respond to you. I mean, she's like, her mind's blown. She's like, this is incredible. I got a guy in Honolulu where I am today. And he started 18 months ago. He's got 147 doctors here in Honolulu as clients. Why? He got in the network. So there's a message here. The best advisors in the industry now have got two or three markets where people network and communicate. They're set to at least 250, 300 people in the group, and they become the go-to gal or the go-to guy for that organization. They become a resource. They make it a market. They get involved in the market. They join the committees. They serve. They do the things that say, I am here for you. And the other beauty of it is, Steve, is once you get into it, let's say in a market, whatever that might be, or a network, it's very easy to get warm introductions. People today do not want to be involved in the referral process. They absolutely hate it. Yeah. I don't want to get involved in my friend's financial life. I mean, we poll them. And 60, well, okay, 1,000 people. 16% said, when we asked the question, how comfortable are you in introducing your advisor to someone uh, that you know that needs financial advice? 16%. 16% said, I want to get involved in referrals. Not so then surprising. we asked the question, how comfortable would you be introducing your advisor to people in your network? 81%. There you go. If I sat down and said, Steve, here's the names of 10 podiatrists here in San Francisco, California, I would like to meet your podiatrist. The possibility is pretty likely that you might know one or two. And then I That's could simply right. ask the question, couldn't I? Yeah, I did a whole course on this. So, you know, what would I ask? I would just simple. I'd say, here's the names of 10 podiatrists. Who do you know? Which ones know you? You go down the list. You give me the back door. Say, how would I go about meeting these people? And you know what Eisner taught me? When they call Eisner, he said, oh, advisors ask these dumb, dead stare questions. How would I go about meeting them? He, he, he. And the client said, oh, I don't know. Suggest. Should I do a little golf outing? Would we do a dinner? Better yet, George, what would you do? They go, no, no, no. Let me tell you how we're going to do this. And all of a sudden, the <laughs> client's on board. And I've got a group we're working. I mean, it's just unbelievable. They're averaging six referrals per review, except they're not referrals or warm introductions. I mean, they, they, I talked to them last week, and they said, Richard, the guy's sitting in the conference room. He said, well, let me just text all these guys in a group text and tell them to call you immediately. Well, that's amazing. That's helpful. That's helpful. Yes. Um, anyway, don't get me going. No, it's what's what's I'm bummed about as we ran out of time because well, I, I just you're you're incredible to listen to. So we're going to have to do more, uh, not only in this podcast, but but with our organization broadly. So I, I just want to thank you for taking the time to chat today to reconnect. Um, we talked about your organization, your website. Um, how else can people connect with you? Uh, they can go, go. They can go to wildmancenter.com. Uh, they can get a whole overview of the platform that we have. We've done the research on over 350 markets in the United States with direct links to prospects in a niche, just as an example. But the easiest way is just send an email to Richard at Richard Wildman, W-E-Y-L-M-A-N, 
Wildman.com. Richard at richardwildman.com. You can send me an email or you can go to richardwildman.com uh, and just send an inquiry. That's the way to go. So that awesome. which so that would be a, a way they could reach out. And you know, if I can help anybody, just we're just here for you. I just want you to win. That's all. You are you are fantastic. Thank you to our guest, Richard Wildman. We'll be back shortly. And welcome back to the Costanza Corner. And I think we're going to do another Costanza, a George Costanza quote, right? So I I can't believe it took us a couple of years to to get here, but it's taken us two years, in fact, to actually bring in George Costanza quotes into the Costanza Corner. I happen to be at a regional meeting this week with, um, with partners where I got to interact with several folks that were listeners and fans of the podcast. So... And, and we were able to mix worlds and they tell their story <laughs> to other folks. But I had this buddy back when I lived in Pittsburgh that for years we were like his, co- his post-college friends and he would not introduce us to his college friends. And he, he was a total Costanza because he did not want to mix worlds. He was, I guess, afraid of some like college stories would come out when he was yeah. now a lawyer and a, you know, a little bit more reputable, but you know, like everybody does crazy stuff in, in college. I didn't want those stories coming out. So the the episode and the quote in question today for our Costanza Corner is, worlds are colliding, Jerry. <laughs> that was like, what was it? It was, yeah, he had, was it his wife, Susan, that he didn't want mixing with, with Jerry and the rest of them? That, that's that's right. He wanted to keep relationship George <laughs> and independent George in separate aspects of his well, life. There's some other quote there, like two worlds, can, can two Georges together cannot survive or something like that. That's hysterical. Oh, so, uh, Thanks for listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, we are big fans of colliding worlds. So go that's, collide some worlds right. out there. Yeah. See you next time. Thanks, everyone. See y'all. You can find The Whole Truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. All one word. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC.